All right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to where Tedra uh, just read from. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 7, it'll be on page 1004 in some of the Bibles. Uh, in some of the Bibles, it'll be on a different page, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> One of the fastest growing religions in the U.S. is secular selfism. It is uh, a worship of self of your feelings, and what's popular in culture. And so if homosexuality is popular, then yay homosexuality. If uh, gender fluidity is popular, then yay gender fluidity. If killing babies is popular, then yay to abortion. And selfism's core tenet is to be the same as everyone else, to fit in. Now they'll say, be you. But that only means be you in these specific ways. If you won't be you in these ways, then you're out. You're not part of the club. And so cultural conformity is the goal, as is the avoidance of all personal suffering, yet living as if you're a victim. Christianity is the complete opposite of this. We live not as victims, but as overcomers. Romans 8, more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. And then, while of course, no one seeks out suffering, we don't enjoy it, we do recognize as believers, Romans 5, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then as followers of Jesus Christ, we embrace being outsiders, being marginal, being the minority. That's who Jesus was. That's who Jesus pursued. And so John 17, we are in the world, but not of the world. Loving our enemies, but not behaving like our enemies. And like all religions, secular selfism has priests. Now, they wouldn't call themselves a religion, but sociologically, it passes the test. I mean, it even has a creed that some people will stick in their yard. In this house, we believe that love is love. Gay rights are civil rights. Women's rights are human rights. Transgender women are women. And the priests of Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, woke companies, academic institutions, media peddle this to us. Come on in. It's easier here. It's comfortable here. Don't go the harder way. Come, be welcome. Don't go out there. Ugh. All the cool kids are here. You want to be a part of this. This is where the book of Hebrews comes in. Hebrews is addressing basically the exact same thing. The recipients of this letter were Jewish converts living in Rome who, in the face of persecution and being excluded from the cool crowd, are being tempted to turn back to Judaism, to turn back to what's comfortable, things that fit in Roman culture. Judaism had accommodated itself to Hellenists. Christianity, that's why they wanted to make a break. Christians are getting persecuted. Jews weren't. Let's not associate with that. And so the argument from the author of of Hebrews is, don't turn back. Press on. Endure. Yes, in the face of this. Don't go back to your old life. Don't go back to your old priests. We've got a new priest. 
a perfect priest, a better priest. And his name is Jesus. He's better than the old priesthood and all that that entailed. And for us today, he's better than the new priesthood and all that the world serves up to us. Because unlike the priests of the Old Testament and of this world, Jesus really can satisfy our hearts. He really can bring hope. He really can forgive our sins. He really can assuage our shame and our guilt. He really can give eternal life and fix this broken world and make everything that's gone wrong here right. And it's this superiority of Jesus, particularly as it relates to the priesthood, that chapter 7 is focused on. Not just that he's better, but that he's like completely other. Like next level, a different league. Like like if Tom Brady showed up to play in a peewee football game. Like there's a huge difference. There's never been a priest like Jesus There never will be because there's not going to be another one. He's eternal. And He's perfect. He's the prophesied fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse 4. A priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so this morning what I want to try to do in a chocked full section of Scripture is show you five ways that Jesus is better than the priests of the Old Testament and the priests of today. And then also what that means for you and for me. All right. And so the first one that I'm going to show you that I want us to see is this. Number one, in your notes, our priest, all right, Jesus, is better qualified. Okay, he's better qualified than any Levitical priest. And so look at verse 11 with me again. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So there's a bunch of names here. So let me just kind of introduce you to who these people are. Then we'll look at the verse again. All right, so first up, we have the Levitical priesthood. And so we've got to go all the way back to, a- to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God promised Abraham, hey, I'm going to fix this broken world. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to give you a family. You don't have one yet, but I'm going to give you one. I'm going to raise up descendants from you more numerable than the sand, more numerable than the stars. I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so finally, the child of promise, Isaac, comes along and the prom- that promise passes to Isaac. Isaac has two kids. One of them's Harry. One of them's a trickster. Goes to the trickster, Jacob. The promise goes to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who are more or less, they become the tribes of Israel. But the promise specifically passes to Judah. Okay? And that would be the tribe of the kings. But then there's this other son, Levi, And that will be the tribe of the priests. And specifically, it was Aaron's descendants. Aaron and Moses were Levites. Aaron's descendants that would serve as the high priest. All this is detailed out in the wall. All these rules, regulations about sacrifices. All of this is prescribed in the wall. Okay? Here's what I need you to hang on to for right now. Judah equals the tribe of the kings. Levi equals the tribe of the priests. Therefore, according to the law... Kings can't be priests, and priests can't be kings. Okay? Got that? 
All right. That's what makes this next guy so remarkable, Melchizedek. He's one of the most important people in the Old Testament, and he's one of the least talked about because he's only talked about even in the Old Testament twice. You've got Genesis 14 where Abraham tithes to him, showing that he's superior. And then in Psalm 110, David writes a messianic psalm and he prophesies that the Messiah will be a priest forever in the order of or patterned after Melchizedek. And what is that pattern? It's the pattern of him being a king and priest simultaneously. Now remember, that's not supposed to happen. There's not, you know, priests aren't supposed to be kings, kings aren't supposed to be priests, but with Melchizedek, it did happen. The Bible tells us he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace, and he's priest of the Most High God. He's the only guy who ever occupied both roles till Jesus. And so he serves as a type of Christ. What that means is he's just a regular dude whose life points forward to Jesus, who is king and priest. But unlike Melchizedek, not just for a little while, but forever and ever and ever. And then Jesus adds on another role, prophet. He fulfills all three of the big roles of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. And so with all of that in mind, now look at verse 11 with me. See the argument here. Now, if perfection had been attainable, all right, and the idea of perfection here is salvation, like righteousness before God. If it had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, basically saying it wasn't, like if it could actually save people, then what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Like if the law could have done anything, why would God have promised a new kind of priest? And so he sent a better one. Verse 12. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law. Like when it's been fulfilled, it's been fulfilled. For the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belonged to another tribe. I'm sorry. When I was singing, I wasn't like this. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And who comes from Judah? The kings. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who, talking about Jesus here, has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the point is this. Jesus is better qualified to be our high priest because he can actually do something. Like the Levitical priesthood, the law can't save. It can condemn, but it can't save. But Jesus can save. And so he's not qualified on the legalities of the law. He's not qualified on genealogy or bodily descent. He's qualified on the basis of his, verse 16, indestructible life. And you know what that is? It's the resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 10, Psalm 10, verse 4. You are a priest forever. Sure. In the order of Melchizedek. 
as in forever and ever. He's bringing me water if y'all hear me say screw. Everyone give it up for Keith. Thank you, Keith. Woohoo! <clears throat> Thank you, brother. And so indestructible life. Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Forever and ever. Like rose again and he now lives forever. And he lives forever as our chapter 4 sympathetic high priest. And so here's what this means for us. We're celebrating Advent right now. Christmas is around the corner. We're looking forward to that. We're looking forward, I mean, just awe and wonder of that miraculous birth. And one of the reasons Jesus came 2,000 years ago and took on human flesh was to identify with us. To live what we live. To go through what we go through. The stresses, the heartaches, the hardships, the trials, the pain, the suffering, temptation. Jesus faced all of that and he faced it perfectly. And then at the end of his life, he went to the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be free, so we could know God, so that we could be adopted into his family and be loved as sons and daughters. Three days later, he rose again from the dead and gave us new and eternal life. And then he ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father and is our sympathetic high priest. And what is he doing there? He's just dishing out grace and mercy to everyone who needs it. Oh, you need it? Here you go. Oh, you're facing a trial? You're facing a hardship? I've been there. I know what it's like. Here, let me come alongside you and help you. You've got a temptation that you're facing here? Here, let me help you with that. Here's grace. Here's mercy in time of need. You need strength? I will strengthen you. This is what Jesus is doing for you today. And here's why that's so, incom- so comforting. His priesthood never ends, which means his help to you never ends. Like he never runs out of help. You need help, he's going to keep helping. So you never get to this place where it's like, I can't do this, or I'm throwing, I'm throwing in the towel, I'm giving up. Jesus always has more help to give. He's your eternal, sympathetic, high priest. Forever. Forever. Like, have you ever thought about that word? Forever. Like, it's hard to think about. Like, we're saying, you know, when, when we've been there 10,000 years, and that's a long time. Like, I can't even think about 10,000 years from now, right? What about a billion years from now? What about a trillion years from now? Jesus will be high priest forever. Is high priest forever. This life and the life to come. And so because he can do something, because he's our eternal high priest, he is better qualified than any priest preaching any message that you will ever find in this world. He wins. Don't go after that. Pursue Christ. Secondly, our priest is better because he's introduced a better hope. So number two in your notes, our priest introduced a better hope. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the author here is making the same statement about the law that he just made about the Levitical priesthood, that it can't save you. 
And it can't make you right with God. And so in that sense, it's useless. And he's not saying the moral law of God is useless. Or, or that it's been set aside. Like the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, reflects God's nature and character. And since God is unchanging, moral law is unchanging. So the moral law is good and right. It's our path to life. But following it can't make you right with God. It's a mirror to show us we're dirty. That's the law. It's a thermometer to show us we're sick. Paul calls it a tutor to point us to Christ. Can't save us. And so he's not saying the law is utterly useless, but as it relates to salvation, yes, it is. Because it can't save. And parts of it have been set aside. Not the moral law, because that's existed before the actual law was given. That's why people are tithing before the Ten Commandments. That's why people are observing the Sabbath before the Ten Commandments. It's eternal. That's why murder was a sin before the Ten Commandments, Cain and Abel. The moral law is eternal. What's been set aside is the ceremonial and the civil laws. The priests, the sacrificial system that existed to point forward to Jesus. That's why they existed. Now Jesus has come, and so they're done. And this was radical for the people of this day to hear this. Their whole society was built around the priesthood. And the guy's saying, that's over. That's done with. And we hear that, and we're like, yeah, that's no big deal. For them, this was radical. And just quite honestly, like, have you ever tried to get church folks who've been doing something for 1,500 years to change anything? Jesus has come, and with his coming now, a better hope is here. And it's this better hope that the whole Old Testament's been pointing to the whole time. The whole time. Or you go, Genesis, how many of you are doing the Bible study in Genesis right now? Ladies, I can, yeah, stick them up a little bit higher. Don't be, you guys are like this. Be proud, like I'm glad I'm in the, right? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates. Genesis chapter 3, we rebel. That's how fast. But immediately, we rebel, and what is the very next thing you get? A promise of help, a promise of forgiveness, a promise of salvation. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. I will send one someday who will stomp the head of the serpent and end all this. And then you just see God from that point start rolling it out. This hope, like there's hope to come. So we go from Abraham to, to well, you get Abraham and he promises, I'm going to make people through you. I'm going to raise up the Messiah through your family. And you trickle on down. So there's hope there. There's one coming. Trickle on down to Moses. That hope still hasn't arrived yet, though. And now the people are in bondage. They're in Israel. Or they're in Egypt. The people of Israel are in Egypt. The crowd for deliverance. God hears them, delivers them, but their hope's still not satisfied. Mount Sinai, He gives them the law, but their hope still is not satisfied. They enter the promised land, hope still not satisfied. Sacrificial systems given, hope still not satisfied. God sends them prophets to say, hey, you need to knock it off or He's going to kill us all. They don't listen. They go into exile. Into captivity, hope seems to be fading. They come out of captivity. And there's a glimmer of hope. But then, 400 years of silence. Not a word from God. And they wonder, is hope lost? Perhaps you feel that way today. 
been so long. I've been going through this. And then all of a sudden, when it was least expected, out of the silence, just outside of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared unto them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so all this time it's been hope's coming. Then... Hope's here. Like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hope's coming, hope's coming, hope's coming. Jesus shows up. Hope is here. Hope's arrived. And He lived and He died and He resurrected and He ascended and He reigns and He's coming again. Second Advent is coming. And so here's the, like, I've read the back of the book. We know how it ends, or rather how it begins again. New heavens, new earth, Sin gone, death gone, pain gone, and people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language surrounding the throne, worshiping the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the better hope. It's a better hope than anything this world can give you. Anything. And so, dear friends, whatever you're going through, like you've got to lift your eyes off yourself and navel-gazing and up to Christ, to an eternal perspective. Like This is a vapor. This is a mist. This life. It is short. Why try to gain the whole world, right? And forfeit your soul. Why try to live for now when it's a mist and eternity is forever? Like invest in what matters. Invest in what lasts. The hope of the very presence of Jesus is coming. And so hang on. Hope's arrived and heaven's coming. We've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. So keep going. Our priest has introduced a better hope. Number three. Our priest guarantees a better covenant. That's why he's better. He guarantees it. It's not maybe, hope so. No, it's guaranteed. Look at verse 20. And he was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. They just became it by terms of the law. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and he's quoting Psalm 110 verse 4 again, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, I'm going to ask you just to hang on to that one because chapter 8 is all about that. That's what chapter 8 is about, a better covenant. And so we're going to come back to that one next week. But for today, just Jesus is better than priests and Melchizedek because he guarantees a better covenant. What the old covenant could only point to, the new covenant accomplishes. All right? So our priest is better qualified. He's introduced a better hope. He guarantees a better covenant, which we'll talk about next week. And now number four, he's next level because our priest offered up a better sacrifice. Our priest offered up a better sacrifice. Look at verse 23 with me. 
The former priests were many in number because they, prevented, they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so again, number four, our priests offered up a better sacrifice. And this is also going to be detailed in the coming chapters, particularly chapter 10. But the whole point is like this. Hey, you, you, you want to go back to the Levitical priests? Well, remember, they're sinners just like you are. And so they have to offer up, uh, they have to offer up their own you know, sacrifice for their own sin before offering up one for you. But Jesus never had to do that. Jesus never had to do that. And so who's better? The one who's got to offer up sacrifices for himself or the one who never has to do that? Right? And he's better because he's perfect. Because verse 26, he's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And so he's never had to make a sacrifice for his sins. When he went to the cross 2,000 years ago, that was to pay for our sins. He offered up himself as a sacrifice once for all, which is something no other priest could do. Jesus is the long-promised Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, like fully and finally takes away the sins of the world by living a sinless life that we haven't, dying the death we should have died, and rising in victory over sin and death. The grave could not hold Him. And because of this, verse 25 then, He is able to save to the uttermost. That is, He can completely save. Which means like the most crazy person you can think of. Like if, if Kanye has legit believed. Okay? And, and time will tell. He may have. Time will tell. But if he legit believed, then he is saved. Like completely. He is considered holy and blameless before God. Because our salvation isn't based on our life. It's based on Christ's. And it is imputed to us. So our, our, our righteousness before God isn't ours. Praise God it's not mine. Praise God for your own life. Like it's not yours. Our righteousness is trash. Our, the righteousness that makes us right with God is the righteousness of Christ. His perfect life that's credited to us, given to us. He takes our sin, He gives us His righteousness, and so we're considered, though we're not in actuality, we're considered holy and blameless on the basis of what Jesus did for us. We're saved to the uttermost, like full completion. We're not saved temporarily. We're saved eternally. And just as the priesthood is eternal, He holds His priesthood forever, so He holds our salvation forever. That's why it can't be snatched out of His hand. It can't be taken from Him. He's the one who saves, not us, so we can't lose it because we didn't save ourselves. He did, to the uttermost. Not just a little bit. 
And so what that means for us is breathe. Like I'm not calling for licentiousness, loose living. We should pursue holiness. But we should understand that that holiness can't save us. It doesn't make us more saved either. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's what Jesus did. And so we pursue holiness now from a position of love and acceptance, not for love and acceptance. That last one's religion. That first one's gospel. Big difference. And we can do this because Jesus offered a better, ultimate, once-for-all-time sacrifice. And through that, all who repent and believe are saved to the uttermost. All right, our priest is better qualified. He gives a better hope. He guarantees a better covenant. He offered up a better sacrifice. And this all culminates, number five then, that Jesus remains our perfect priest king forever. Forever, priest king. Melchizedek, order of. He remains this forever. And I know we just talked about this, right? Joe, we just talked about the permanency of this. We just talked about the eternality of this. I get that. But the author talks about it over and over and over again. So I think he's trying to get us to emphasize this. And so look at verse 23 with me again. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently. And now you look down at verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And so again, he's hammering on the eternal nature of Jesus' priesthood. Like in the Old Testament, the priesthood was like a cashier at McDonald's, right? There's a new one all the time. Just revolving door, right? One guy would be it, he'd live for a while, then he'd die, get a new one, live, he'd die, get a new one, live, die, he'd get a new one. That's how it went for 1,500 years. But the point here is you don't have to worry about that with Jesus. There's not a next guy up. He's not going anywhere. He remains a priest forever. And since he does that, then look at verse 25 again. He always lives to make intercession for them. When you slow down and look at those, ver- those words alone, it is striking. The author just said that Jesus lives eternally to make intercession for us to pray for us to take care of us to give aid to us to give help in time of need when you're learning the english language right and i think it's hilarious that like i was better at math and science that's why i went to georgia tech and now all i do is language I wasn't as good at that. But I do know this. When you're learning the English language, or really any language, verbs have tenses, right? Past, present, future. And so you've got, you know, I ran, past. I run, present. I will run, future, right? These tenses. Well, though it's a noun, when you think of salvation... You need to think of all three of those tenses. Salvation encompasses all three of those. Past, present, and future. 
And so Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin, which is death. He did that on the cross and in His resurrection. Past. That's already happened. Jesus is saving us from the power of sin through the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then one day in the future, Jesus will save us from the presence of sin forever. And so you need to understand like what Jesus is doing right now is participating in the present aspect of your salvation. What is that called? It's called sanctification, transformation. This is where the Holy Spirit works in your life to make you less like you and more like Christ. And He's doing this by interceding for us, praying for us, providing for us, strengthening us, encouraging us. And He does it continually and forever. Unconditionally. Unconditionally. Like He doesn't cast you out or cancel you like culture or like your fake friends when you don't conform. He keeps loving you. He calls you back in. He gives you grace. He gives you mercy. He sticks closer than a brother. And He does this always because He's our forever King Priest. And so what do you do with all this? You read through all this and you got all these priests and hopes and covenants and Le- Leviticals and Melchizedeks and Psalm 110, priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What do we do with all of that? Here's what we do. We realize, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the millionth time, we realize how deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch. We got any wretches in here? All hands should be up. To make a wretch His treasure. Why should I gain from His... Like, why? I should not. He deserves it all. He makes a wretch his treasure. And friends, I'll tell you this. Nothing else in this world will love you like that. There's not one thing. No matter what the priests throw up, no matter what the world gives, no matter what it promises, there is nothing that will love you like this, be with you like this, provide for you like this, stay with you like this. Nothing. No one. And so don't turn back to things that won't work. Tweaking C.S. Lewis a little bit. Don't go back to the mud pie. Stay at the holiday by the sea. Don't go looking to lesser things. Like, are you doing that? Are you looking to lesser things to satisfy you? Are you looking to lesser things to be your guide for life? Are you looking to lesser things to give you what you know is missing? They may give you a hit for a second, but it won't last. Don't do that. Don't go there. It won't work. 
Augustine says, your heart will be restless until it rests in Him. And he's right. Until it rests in your perfect priest king. Look there. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you that you love us. We are thankful to you that you make wretches. Wretches. Not those other people that are wretches. Me. We. Are wretches. And you love us. And you give us grace. And you give us mercy. And Jesus, you live forever to intercede for us. For the better hope. A better covenant. A better sacrifice. Father, fill us with hope this morning. I hope this guaranteed because of Christ. In His name, amen.